It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome, movie lovers, to another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. I am Scott, and joining me all the way from Texas is Lauren. Yes, I'm here in Texas all the way from... All the way from. It's been a while since we've recorded. We've been we've uh, we we got ahead of ourselves a little bit, so there wouldn't be too much of a drought of episodes. Um, but we're back. We're recording more episodes, and we have actually have quite a few movies to talk about today. Um, and so I'm saying this as a reminder that we are a critical podcast. We critique movies, and so um, I would highly recommend you if you are one of those people who do not like spoilers. I would highly recommend you check out our website, moviesyoushouldlove.com because there you will find a page for each of these episodes, and on those pages are very thorough show notes that will tell you exactly what times that we talk about each of these movies. So if you don't want to hear about uh, Django Unchained or maybe some of the spoilers from Oblivion, I would you know go to that website, find out you know, okay, from minute three to minute five and a half, they talk about Oblivion. That we can skip over it and be unspoiled. If you don't mind, or if you've already seen it, then just keep listening. Other places you can find us, of course, are on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash movies you should, and on Twitter at movies you should. <sighs> with, all that, with all of that out of the way, Lauren, um, we are going to be talking later about Some Like It Hot, which is number 22 on AFI's Top 100. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about all the different early summer movies that we've been watching and Take what an, Lauren. yes what an early summer it has been scott <laughs> no um uh no i'm actually i'm very happy with with the summer movie crop thus far there's it um there have been a few superhero movies but you know that's not like my yeah. passion we've we've had that discussion here on the podcast before yes. and so i've been really excited there have been a lot of movies that kind of fall outside of that genre mm-hmm. giving you know me something to go watch in the theater absolutely um so uh I think one of the earlier summer movies was Oblivion. Yes. Um, the Tom Cruise sci-fi movie. Um, Brought to you by the director of Tron Legacy. Yes. His name eludes me. Yes. Um, and uh, it was interesting. It was, it was an interesting little movie. I, I wouldn't like go all the way to like full-on greatness with it, but it was, it was yeah. a good little film. A good the, big film. Kelly and I went and saw it, and we both, we both really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Although... Well, I'll, I'll get to my although here in a second. But more, my, one of my favorite things about the movie is that the trailer didn't spoil it in any yes. way. Like, the trailer really focuses kind of like on the first 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to tell people that because everyone goes like, oh, yeah, then he meets Morgan Freeman. I'm like, yeah. And that's like the first, thir- that, that's the first act. Mm-hmm. There's so much more that happens. Unfortunately, the things that happen after that, there's two really big plot holes that I had kind of had issue with. And this is where we get into spoiler territory, uh, people. Uh, One is I felt like Morgan Freeman's character knew way too much about the aliens for not having ever seen the aliens. Yeah, somebody had to explain things. Right. He he was convenient, but it wasn't believable. Yeah, he's Colonel Exposition, you know, and which is fine. Again, in this kind of movie, you kind of need someone to be like, and then the aliens showed up and they did all these things to us. And you're like, that's cool, but from his perspective... That did. I don't know how he knew what he knew. Right. You know, I felt like there was an opportunity, and I really expected a third act twist to show that he was on the original spacecraft that met the aliens. That's how he knew the nature of the aliens and how they were there to uh, harvest everything from Earth. But he didn't. So I'm like, how does he know these things? That part was never explained. The other big problem I had was at the end, where Tom Cruise is flying to the mothership, listening to the little black box listening to the conversation that um, 
from earlier in the film, and I don't know how that black box recorded that information since the black box was jettisoned from that craft to be to land on Earth thousands, you know, hundreds of years earlier or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, like, yeah, I'm not sure. Like I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, the black box wasn't in that part of this ship. That the black box was in the part that was jettisoned because that's how he found it on Earth, and the part that went into the alien mothership. It would. How did uh, Bluetooth? Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that. But those two things aside, um, I actually really enjoyed it, and it's a movie I probably will revisit at some point because there were some really, I thought, some neat ideas and concepts, and it's a beautiful looking film, if yeah. nothing else. The um, the thing I thought that was interesting about it, a couple of things. I, first, I really liked the robots. The the yeah, I thought they were a good nemesis on Earth. That. Like could have been really cartoony and bad, but were actually really menacing without being like too, like they were very believable somehow. I thought yeah, that was I, uh, I could definitely I, believe somebody designed those. Yeah, like that was a huge success for the movie for me. Yeah, uh, in general, my the, the thing I would say about it is it was a movie that was much better than I was expecting going into it, mm-hmm. and so it surprised me versus disappointed me. You know, it was it was <laughs> like one of those like oh, well this was way better than I was expecting, and yeah. so I have pleasant things to say about it, but. Um, <laughs> For for those who who have seen anything that I've ever done, there's a film that I made a while ago called Cog. Um, <laughs> th- this movie is that movie. It is. It's like it's the same story, just I in think, in like a feature length sci fi thing, and so and mine's like that. a five minute short, and so <laughs> that was kind of the weirdest, funniest thing about it to me is like, oh, it's the same story. Wait a minute. Um, <laughs> That's really true. Yeah. Anyhow, that uh, that was just kind of a weird personal note. Like I walked out, and my wife was like, "I like that." I'm like, "You should." It was my movie. <laughs> so no, it, it wasn't. It was a completely different idea. Just just it had that same central theme to it. Extrapolated from Cog was yes. Oblivion. I'm sure. I'm sure. Tom. That was Cruise the other thing. Oblivion had like the title is so nebulous. It has like nothing yeah. to do with anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the other thing that um, that really happened for this movie is that even though the trailers didn't spoil really the movie for you. I didn't feel like the stuff that happened later on, like there was a lot of exposition getting there from Morgan Freeman and stuff, but it was all still pretty guessable. Like I kind of knew exactly where we were headed a lot of the time, even when they were trying to kind of tease stuff at us. So I I don't know that the the secret of the movie inside the movie kept itself very well. Um, But I I think it's just because it was such a, there were only a couple of ways it really could go. I, I think that comes back to like that being educated as a moviegoer kind of yeah. thing, and you just go, "Oh, well, there's like three ways this movie could end out, and it's probably going to be this one." And yeah, stuff. I my, don't think that's biggest, really the movie. My biggest fault. frustration really was Morgan Freeman's exposition, mm-hmm. um, because I felt like that was story. That was a story element that could have been handled differently, or could have been handled mm-hmm. better. Because I was going through the second act, going, "Why should we believe Morgan Freeman?" Because we haven't been told enough about his character that I wondered if there was going to be a third act twist in which the aliens were the good guys or something different like I was like or the nature of this craft out in space was going to be different than what they were saying it was something I was I was waiting for something else and kind of went oh no he was telling the truth we were supposed to believe him from the beginning that's weird <laughs> yeah I, in general the stuff with the humans on earth as opposed to like the cloud humans yeah um I thought the Every, everything other than like that very first scene where like they're shooting through the ruins and stuff and it's yeah. like all creepy and stuff other than that sequence I kind of thought all of the human on earth stuff kind of felt a little flat I thought that that stuff could have 
yeah. been taken a little further and and actually been made interesting versus just used for exposition. Yeah, um, I, yeah. The stuff that I really enjoyed was the stuff mm-hmm. in the clouds. That's yeah. a, that's a good way to. The, the other thing I would have liked to have seen is the way the movie is set up is like you 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 end up thinking there's going to be like maybe dozens if not hundreds of like these cloud colonies mm-hmm. like you know where there's you know a thousand jacks and a thousand whatever her name was like I would have loved to have seen one reference somewhere in the end mm-hmm. like there was obviously at least another jack at that least, came at back least, then I guess, several several jacks that came back well there was a, we saw the one at the end right. but then I guess because of the way they numbered there was at least 50 right so I would have liked to have seen maybe other potential jacks yeah that came back and then I also would have liked to have seen maybe a couple of the other redheads yes like maybe like somewhere more like, redheads is never bad no no but like like maybe destiny wasn't such that like all of the Tom Cruise characters were savable and all of the redheads were not like maybe yeah. like each one had individual free will or what, I would have yeah. loved to have seen like a or what, a, if, the, or what if this this Jack story is not at all uh, unique and so the the other cloud houses or whatever you want to call them have actually been fully automated because the Jack has been killed and replaced by robots or something yeah. you know go to hint that there's this bigger story or even I would have liked to have seen this alien race you know like, I feel like there's a lot going on there I go why are they harvesting water like, what are what are they doing why do they need this I, I want to know more and it's like there was it was set up you could do a you could do mm-hmm. a sequel I guess but I'm not super interested in the sequel but yeah. I, yeah. I just I think there could have been a, just a, a little bit more yeah. interest in the ending that could have raised a whole bunch of really cool questions right at the end and I, it was kind of a missed opportunity. Yeah. So, I know that's a lot of like stuff where we're kind of maybe a little bagging on it, but it actually was pretty good. Um I, I don't know if it's I, think, if, I don't know if it's full ticket price kind of thing, but you yeah. can't go see it at full ticket price now anyhow probably. But I think the first see it. 40 minutes were super strong. Yeah. And I I really enjoyed that stuff. Like um and it has a lot of really cool, clever stuff. There's some beautiful, uh, some beautiful uh, camera work and, and yeah, some, you know, and some really CG believable, and yeah, and some really believable future tech. Yeah, it's like everything. I kind of feel like this is where Apple's headed. Like they will be the ones that design these little robot scouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it was it was a pretty cool movie overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I don't remember if I. I'm just going to touch on this really briefly, Lawrence. I know you and I have talked about this. Uh, Personally, and I, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast, but earlier this year they released Jurassic Park 3D in theaters, and Kelly and I jumped at the chance to see giant dinosaurs on the screen. Um, I loved it. It was a really, really great experience. Uh, that being said, I feel like movie studios could save themselves a lot of money by not trying to 3D these old movies. It, it was they did a really good job and honestly the 3d worked really well when the dinosaurs were on the screen but it wasn't until sitting in the theater with 3d glasses on i realized how much of that movie is actually people sitting around a table talking or standing in a trailer talking or you know it's people in a car talking Mm -hmm. and it's like it's not a movie you would shoot in 3d and if you it was a 3d movie you wouldn't shoot it this way and so it's like hey guys if you want to re-release back to the future just release back to the future Mm -hmm. clean up that print Send it out, and I will be there opening night to see Back to the Future on the big screen because I missed it when I was a kid. And that's why I went to see Jurassic Park. We enjoyed it, but the 3D didn't add a whole heck of a lot. And again, I've, I, 
but seeing it on the big screen also really it helped me really understand the genius of Spielberg because that movie is so phenomenally well done the way he handles the special effects you know choosing when to have an animatronic when to choose to have a digital dinosaur versus a stop motion dinosaur and blending all three of those in one seamless sequence is it's astonishing to watch and it's so masterfully done that um, we thoroughly enjoyed it nice yeah um, well, that, that reminds me, uh, I know this is like a, a larger conversation you want to have here, but, um, Star Trek, we went and saw the new yes. Star Trek movie and, uh, ended up seeing a 3D showing. I wasn't going to go to a 3D showing of it. I was going to go to one of the non 3Ds, but just yeah. show times and my life aligned to get me at a 3D showtime. Right. Um, you know, and, and it was okay. Like, I'm, I'm kind of at a point with 3D where I'm like, yeah, whatever. If I have to see it that way, yeah. I can live with it. Like, it was it was not a bad experience, but it was kind of one of those where I went, man, the 3D did not add a single thing to this movie for me. Yeah. And, like, I still wish I had seen the non-3D version of it. Yeah, we went and saw it. Uh, we went and saw it. Uh, I don't think... It might have it been opening day. We went uh, on a Friday afternoon. Kelly got off work a little early. We went and saw Star Trek Into Darkness. And we both really, really enjoyed it. But we saw the traditional 2D. And, it, you know, I don't feel like I missed anything. There was That opening sequence when Bones and Kirk are running through the field, I guess there's a couple spears that fly at your face. But yeah, that, was the, that was about the best of it. I mean, not, <laughs> not that that's what 3D has to be. I don't... I mean, this is a larger conversation about 3D, but, like, I don't feel 3D has to be throwing stuff at my face. Yeah. But it needs to serve some purpose other than... Like, it needs to enhance your sense of wonder or something. Um you know, like uh, I, I talked about Prometheus when when I went and saw that. Yeah. Like the three D to that enhanced it enough that it it really made it like I was exploring this alien world. And like when you know stuff happened in that space, it was much more immersive. Yeah. With Star Trek, it was just like, oh look, it's a three D Enterprise, right? Kind of. You know, it's like it didn't it didn't really do much to enhance much of anything for me. Yeah. But that aside, what did you think of uh, Star Trek? I loved it. I loved the movie. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was really good. Um, I I have really appreciated J.J. Abrams' reimagining of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. That, I know that there's a lot of Star Trek people out there who all have Shaking their own their opinions or, or whatever. <laughs> and um, you know, I I think there's probably validity to everybody's criticisms or critiques. But at the same time. I'm not coming at this as the world's largest Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have anything against the older Star Treks, and I have seen any number of episodes of them. Um, but I'm not... I, I don't think just because they are canon and fantastic in their own right that you can't do something completely different with the franchise. And mm-hmm. and I really like that... Um, I, like, I, I still feel like... Abrams Star Treks are still trying to have like a larger conversation mm-hmm. while also bringing better action and better effects and better, you know, more accessibility into it. Um, and I, I, I appreciate a lot of that. I completely agree. Um, we went and saw it. We loved it. And what was interesting is Kelly had never seen Wrath of Khan, which is mm-hmm. kind of the movie. A lot of what you see in Into Darkness is kind of based on. Based yeah. on, yeah. Or and so we, so we watched Wrath of Khan like about a week later, and she goes, oh, wow. This was, you know, they 
basically remade Wrath of Khan for Into Darkness. And not to offend Trekkies, but after watching Into Darkness, Wrath of Khan's kind of a snooze fest. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't realize, like, it's still a really solid, I mean, it's still maybe it's, one it's of the... Just, it's very slow moving. It's very slow moving, and there's a lot of just kind of sitting, let's sit by the fire bones and talk about your retirement and how I'm getting older. And there's a lot of, there's a lot more of that, which is cool, which, and maybe that's, maybe that's what a lot of the, the Trekkies out there are complaining about, is that there was a, a slower, methodical pace to the conversations. That's that being said, I was blown away by the sociological, geopolitical conversation mm-hmm. taking place in the darkness because I kind of showed up just for a fun Star Trek space adventure. You know, like I like these characters. I want to see what happens next. And I was not expecting uh, the Bin Laden story. I wasn't expecting, you know, a conversation about 9-11 and terrorism and the nature of war and some of these really fairly deep conversations that they... They, they. I felt like they plumbed pretty well. I don't know. It's amidst all of this big spectacle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's. I think it's well, well worth your time. Um, you know, it's it's a very in in the best way possible. Like it's it's both the same and different from the first one. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like um, in this con is much more fleshed out than in the previous star trek movie the villain mm-hmm. in that one that was kind of my biggest problem with with uh the first star trek uh jj abrams star trek um is that the villain just felt kind of like tacked on a little bit like, we need this villain here so oh, yeah, like oh yeah we need him and, like this one it actually feels kind of organic to the story and and, and everything he, which i think is a big improvement it is and um hmm Here's what I, here's what I, the I guess what I will I would like to say to all of the you older Trek fans out there um, instead of whining and kind of complaining about some of this if you didn't like these movies I think this is a really great opportunity to bring more people into the fold exactly instead of going Ugh, Abrams go oh you guys you guys liked Into Darkness you guys should totally check out the original series have you seen the original series have you seen Next Generation because to me that is the that is the success and that is the purpose of having a a fan base it's not to draw up walls and go oh well, you like Deep Space Nine well pfft, that was dumb. I like Next Generation better. Instead of doing that, go, oh, you like that? Because the cool right. thing to me was, if you like Kirk, Kirk's the same. He He's really based I, on William Shatner's Kirk. I have to give Chris Pine, uh, Chris Pine amazing credit. Like, he is, like, studied Shatner and his, like, he... he Without, you can see Shatner. You can in see him. Shatner without it going into caricature. Yeah. You know, he's not doing, like, some kind of Shatner parody where he's talking really... Yeah. Expressively bones. But know, it's that, it's like it's like the essence of Shatner exactly. is in him somehow. It's, like the, it's, it's great. The, the the spirit of Shatner and the character that Shatner created with Kirk. To me, this is Kirk. I mean mm-hmm. it's like and when you see Spock and you see Bones and Scotty and all of them, I go, these are the characters that I've always heard about and I loved from the old original movies. So I really, really dug yeah. it. And Yeah, the thing um, I would say to fans, uh on on your same note, mm-hmm. like just because these exists doesn't delete the others from existing like you have an entire body of work and and this is like a new a new piece of it and what's really cool to me is that it, people talk about especially when you watch long-running shows like doctor who they go well there's always there's canon and then there's head canon you can decide i'm not going to listen to this story because it i don't like the way this represents this character this or you know when they reboot a franchise you go what what happened to all those old sh- 
the old movies and the old TV shows. I like those. Within the context of these movies, all of those things still exist. Mm-hmm. It's like, this isn't wiping the slate clean of Wrath of Khan. You can still have all that continuity. This is like this alternate reality. Alter- this <laughs> this alter- literally alternate reality where the story is playing out in a slightly different way. So it doesn't negate yours at all. And honestly, in a really cool way, I think it provides a way to re-examine the old, uh, the old movies and the old shows through the lens of the new. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's really. I feel like it's bringing a lot of the spirit of Star Trek to a new generation, and I don't think that's bad. No, I completely agree, and I am looking forward to uh, the new Star Wars movies too. Because yeah, J.J. Abrams on board. Yeah, um, but you you referenced um, the whole Bin Laden search, and yeah, you, were, you had you had a direction you wanted to head with some of that. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, a little bit here. Um, it was just it's really interesting to me because. Uh, I know you. I think you might have reviewed Zero Dark Thirty slightly here on the podcast. Um, I hadn't seen the movie yet, but now that I've seen it, um, I really kind of wanted to have a conversation about it um, because Zero Dark Thirty is an astonishing movie. Um, it really is really, really well done. Um, I can't. There's. I don't know if there's anything wrong with the movie really in any way. However. Um, it felt weird watching it, and even afterwards, because through the whole movie, the whole movie is based around the, the hunt for Osama bin Laden, um, which is a true story, as we all know. Um, and you go into the movie, at least I had already heard this, like the last 30 minutes basically plays out in real time as they charge the compound that bin Laden uh, is staying at. And so you're watching this whole movie really kind of waiting for the last 30 minutes, and so it's this weird for me if it bordered on this weird glorification of the killing of a real person and i know he was you know he was the head of a huge terrorist organization that was responsible for a lot of innocent people dying and i'm not saying this isn't i'm not saying he didn't get what he deserved or that this shouldn't have happened i'm not saying that in any way it's it we're so close to the real event that making a movie that is solely based on that seems weird. Like my love of history has kind of taught me that um, to truly understand a historical moment, you need to understand all of the things that went into it, but also to appreciate that moment, you have to understand the things that come after it. So to really understand like world war two, you need to understand fascism and Nazism and you need to understand why a country or people would embrace that so you have to actually go back in time and see what Germany was going through and then to really appreciate it you have to go forward another 40-50 years to see the long lasting effects that had on the world I'm not convinced we're in a place yet where we really maybe should be making this movie I don't know it's you know it's it's a weird movie to me because um I think the way it's made, it is made without a lot of specific judgment inside the film. It's 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 not a documentary, but it's made with kind of that sensibility, I would say, where it's yeah. kind of just a, and here's an event that happened, and then here's an event that happened, and there's these characters in it who may have their own opinions on things, but that is not the opinion in either direction of the filmmaker. Like, it, it, yeah. it presents things without comment, which is a very interesting thing. And what's also interesting is when you read the reviews and, and that kind of stuff on it is that people on both sides 
say that it has the opinion of the other because people are bringing their own opinions yeah. into the film. I think it's I think it's a fairly opinionless movie that's just kind of presenting a this set is, of events. This is how we know and, things happen. Yeah, and it, it really reminds me of um, um, some of the stuff that came out after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, there is a... Um, a short film. Uh, it's like a 30 minute film and I cannot remember the name of it now um, because I wasn't planning on talking about this. Um, it's, it's something like night and fog or something like that. Oh, is, is what I've I heard think of that. Is. Um, I think it's night and fog. Um, that sounds very familiar. But um, basically these guys went, yeah, 1955. Um, so 10 years really after everything. It's a, um, a French documentary short film where, um, these filmmakers went back to concentration camps and um and there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of um dialogue or anything in it it's just kind of presenting like this was a concentration camp and like here's what the concentration camp is now 10 years later mm-hmm. and and like it's just kind of a it's an interesting piece because it's not really a a piece of the war or anything, but it's showing kind of this aspect of what happened at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's almost how I feel about um, Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I, I feel there's importance to it because it kind of it captures a moment. Mm-hmm. Which I think is is valid in, in capturing a moment, mm-hmm. but at the same time, that moment doesn't necessarily have all of the information. It doesn't have all of the context you need to really understand right. what a moment is. Right. Um, and so, yeah, Zero, Zero Dark Thirty is a very weird movie for me to kind of wrap my head around. I, I will have to say, you know, especially you know, kind of agreeing with what you're saying. Um, I appreciate the fact that it doesn't have a strong opinion that, you know, I feel I was really kind of worried that it was going to turn into like a slow motion, shoot him up. Mm -hmm. Here's him dying, getting rid of with bullets. And it's not, it all happens very quickly, almost off screen. You know, you never actually quite see Bin Laden's face Mm -hmm. in the movie. Yeah. I think, I think with zero dark 30, I think it's going to be a movie that we kind of have opinions about today Mm -hmm. in one way or another in, 50 years, 60 years, just like Night and Fog. Like, I don't know that the people of the time could fully comprehend everything that Night and Fog meant or means today. Because, like, today we now bring, you know, what, 60-some years of World War II history, you know, of of fully deconstructing all of the um, atrocities that happen in concentration camps. And so seeing it, it's like a really raw experience today, like seeing that movie. I don't know that the people of that t- of of the time in you know 1955 when it came out would have that same experience watching it. That's fair. I you think know, that's... people 60 years from now seeing Zero Dark Thirty, I don't know what that experience is going to be like. You know, what that is going to bring to history. But I almost feel like the movie was created to preserve a moment of history. I hadn't thought about it in that without, context. Without that makes, allowing... That makes me do feel better about yeah. it in general, because I hadn't put it in that context. Because to me, I'm kind of more interested in the bigger conversations that surround this moment, which is what which is what I love when a genre approaches a conversation. I feel like, I feel like Star Trek Into Darkness did it, and also in a weird way, Iron Man 3 did it, because they both 
basically center around a fictitious version of a hunt for Bin Laden. You know, um, in Iron Man 3, you have Tony Stark, our Iron Man character. Um, he gets attacked by a person um, called the Mandarin, who is a, a well-established comic book character. But in this movie, they treat him much more like the head of a terrorist organization, down to the point where he is sending out uh, basically um, people uh, people who blow themselves up to destroy a building, to destroy a, a group of people. He's sending out these people. And then on top of that, there's also these extra attacks. And so he takes it upon himself to hunt down this person and take him out, which in a lot of ways parallels America's response and what was going on after being attacked so many times. And so, but it's interesting because by, I feel like by removing the realism and kind of going, we're doing this in a superhero movie, we're doing this in a sci-fi um, a big sci-fi film it allows you to deconstruct the characters Benedict Cumberbatch becomes Khan uh, which <laughs> which is a reveal they, which is the, the worst kept secret about this movie yeah. um, which is really funny because in the theater uh, people gasped when he goes my name is Khan people were like <gasps> and I was like and I love people's response but anyway by by making him this white British character um I felt like we were able to approach him as a character and examine why a person would use terrorist tactics to further his cause and examine his belief structure and his system instead of it being like, oh, this is Bin Laden. Here's this, um, you know, non-Caucasian person attacking these wonderful, you know, idyllic society. Why would he do that? Oh, he's a bad guy. We should kill him. Instead, and this may be slightly racist, I don't know, but I feel like by making him a basically a a caucasian person fighting our caucasian heroes i feel like we're almost able to take a step back and examine the characters in a different way that our predisposition judgments of or our feelings towards a certain group of people may prevent us from doing Hmm. and so i really appreciated that about both i i I really loved iron man 3 and and star trek into darkness because they're both very fun movies but both of them made me walk away going huh (laughs) you know i I had more to think about other than it just being a super fun sci-fi action movie so that's those are all my thoughts on all this whole thing i just think and i find it really interesting we're in a place now where i feel like collectively we are really beginning to process the bin laden I don't know the hunt for Bin Laden and all of that because previously we had already began doing um, like with Battlestar Galactica. That was one of the things that you and I love. I know about the the relaunch of Battlestar Galactica was that it was a very post nine eleven TV mm-hmm. show where they used sci fi tropes and ideas to explore a multi religious polytheistic society um, and how those how these two people can get can they coexist. Will they coexist? And that, and now we're kind of going a step beyond that and going, well, what about this aspect of it? Um, so I don't know, but it, yeah, that, that's kind of those are all those are my thoughts on those three movies, I guess. Other than if you guys want to know what I think about Iron Man three, I think it was great. It was written and directed by Shane Black. If you guys didn't know that, that's the guy responsible for the Lethal Weapon movies. Well, he wrote them. He didn't direct the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and so he's reteaming with Robert Downey Jr., who. Um, he writes for really well, and it's a t- 
terrifically fun film and one of my favorite parts in it is the fact that the woman Gwyneth Paltrow is not treated like a damsel in distress and she never has in all three movies and she really gets to be a kick butt hero in the end which is really awesome which I loved and they constantly undermine Robert Downey Jr.'s cool factor because he is a cool guy and Tony Stark is supposed to be a cool guy and Shane Black does his best to undermine that at every turn (laughs) nice nice um all right, so we have just a couple other movies on our list that we wanted to talk about. Yes. Too. I mean, not that you know we have a lot to pack in. It's been a couple weeks since we've, we've talked, so... So buckle up. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, the first one, we've both seen Django Unchained. Yeah. Um, and based on our pre-recording conversation, it seems like we might have a little bit of uh, discussion that we need to have on this one. I think so. so. Um, Take it away, Lauren. Yeah. Okay, so for me... I think Django Unchained is probably the best thing that Quentin Tarantino has made since probably like Pulp Fiction. Um, it is... I agree. Um, which is not to say it is not a rough movie, because it is a movie full of horrible things that people say and do, and people's mentalities are horrible. But that said, there is a central set of... Um, characters, uh, Django and then the uh, the German, yeah. who create a, a moral center to this film that is very, uh, specifically the German, um, mm. that is very fascinating to me, because uh, there's kind of a moment um, that kind of sums up their relationship, which is really fascinating, where, where the German basically says something like, I have freed you and now I feel responsible for you or something like that, you know, yeah. uh, responsible to make sure your life turns out. And, and and they just, they have this really fascinating relationship that develops and I love them together. Mm-hmm. And I love, I, I, I just, I, I love what they do. I mean, it's a very, to me, it's a very redemptive story in a lot of ways for both characters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, symbolism and stuff I, I can get into. I, I, this is, um, I know we've we've been going long. So, but Meh. basically, I just I really, I really liked everything they had going on, which it made a lot of the horribleness, uh, you know, meeting up with characters who had horrible um, um, attitudes about slavery, about people, about races, and everything. Um, it was it was truly a a balance of good versus evil, if you will. Like, and you can could really see the struggle in a time. It's it's obviously taken well out of um into into that Quentin Tarantino level where he pushes the boundaries of everything, mm-hmm. and at the same time, because it's so shocking and in your face with everything, it is probably one of the first times in film that I feel has really represented the atrocities of slavery in uh, the way it should be in a lot of ways. Somebody, um, a friend I work with said the same thing, actually said, you know, most of the time when somebody makes a slavery movie, you go in going, I slavery is bad. You know, Mm -hmm. um, this movie 
because of the because of the general tone of the film where it can be really lighthearted at times and kind of slapsticky even at times um when you see the atrocities of slavery, it is so shocking, and the and the people's cavalier attitude towards their slaves and the atrocities, it b- makes slavery even more offensive, and it makes you go, "Oh my goodness, why are they okay with that?" Right. As because opposed he, to watching a movie yeah. like Amistad or something, where you go, "Yeah, yeah, no, I know, it's it's a very serious, yeah, com- you know, it's it it hits you differently." Yeah, because even if the reality was more that. Amistad or glory or something where yeah. you know everything's much more understated and just kind of an accepted level and you know it's just kind of it's more the the mental concept that like you know what these people are not free and they are forced to do things against their will and you know they've yeah. been beaten and stuff. like you know in in this movie it's taking those kind of things that we know and kind of that are usually so understated and it just puts it so far out there like it's it's beyond the way it ever would have been stated in real life but it's just it's such a way of of bringing you into touch with what those things are mm-hmm. um you know that said it it turns into a quentin tarantino bloodbath in the last 30 minutes mm-hmm. of the film and for a for a movie that had a lot that was kind of the promise of the movie the entire time that you were going on with it mm-hmm. at the same time Quentin Tarantino is such a good writer and there's so much good writing in this movie that I kind of hoped the entire length of the film up until we get to the giant killing bloodbath of everything that there might have been some other like it was never promised that there could be, but it, it just seemed like there could have been a cleverer, a more sophisticated way to end this. And yet, and yet we know that's not true through history. And and so it's kind of it's a you know it it took a giant national bloodbath to cleanse a lot of stuff out too. So I don't know. It's it's a weird movie. I I really liked it though. Uh, I thought there's... it was okay. <laughs> um, and I say that. And I think. It's no, it's no real secret. I am one of the few people in the world that just Quentin Tarantino doesn't do a lot for me. I respect a lot of what he does, but I always, I always, other except for Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, I always leave his movies disappointed. Like I get pulled in and go, this could be interesting, but by the hour mark, I'm like, how much more of this movie is there? And by the end, I'm like, they they don't leave me with anything. Um, I know I'm alone in the world. Um, that being said, it's uh, okay, Scott. Christoph Waltz's character in this, I adored. Like he was a fantastic character. I loved the way he could talk his way out of anything. He was always willing to draw his gun. He had his gun ready, but if he could, he would just kind of smile and like talk his way around the law and through the law. Like I really want to see his TV show, and I would watch every episode of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so to me, it was really disappointing to see the way the movie kind of ends specifically with his character because i was like dude just get over it you don't have to you could like i it really disappointed me that i felt like django and i, I keep forgetting his name the christoph waltz character i felt like they could have walked away with django's wife mm-hmm. not a big deal they could that's have, the like, thing it's like there was there was a moment where if they could have 
swallowed pride a little bit. Not that you wanted them to, because it was. Oh, I absolutely it was, uh, wanted them to. <laughs> but I, but I really wanted them to because I wanted them all to live, and because I wanted them to get the heck out of there and leave the horrible situation and go live happy, productive lives. Because it was mission accomplished at that point. Yeah, like they they had achieved what they had mm-hmm. wanted to achieve. Walk away, you guys. And he's just like, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. I had, you know, you're like, but why? <laughs> like you could have. Um, and so here's and here's the other part for me. Like when I say it's okay, to me, that's a huge, uh, for me, that's a huge thing to say about a Quentin Tarantino movie because usually I walk away disappointed. I didn't hate the movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so good job, Quentin. Um, I, I did have there was another problem I had throughout the film, which was I never believed any of the characters were real, and that may be a stylistic decision of the script of the I don't know what it was, but they felt like cartoon characters going through horrible, horrible things, and so I never quite cared enough. I never quite I I, I was never I don't know there was something there. Maybe it was like the fact that the way they talked and then you have the atrocities of just like the rampant racism and the use of the n-word everywhere on top of the awful things that you were witnessing on top of everything else there was for me there was something that just lacked it didn't completely gel so there was something and then to see the the bloodbath at the end where i even felt like people who maybe didn't deserve to die were dying mm-hmm. and you're just like Ugh. i don't know i'm weird that way i you know it's it's one of the same I, I won't get into Game of Thrones but it's the same to me it's almost kind of the same thing it's the same reason I don't watch Game of Thrones I just kind of go I don't I don't understand okay I'm just this movie wasn't made for me that being said it was maybe I think his best film since Pulp Fiction yeah it um just one I mean for me especially I think right now because I've been immersed in Civil War stuff for about a year and a half two years now right. working on on this documentary project there was a lot in it that was, you know, I know the history of that time so well now mm-hmm. that watching this, I think it was a really good catharsis for me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, that I, may I color de- my opinion a little bit as well. And I was going to say, I could definitely see it being cathartic for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It was just, Quentin Tarantino isn't making movies for me, and I don't think he really cares. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and that's fine <laughs> yeah um do you want to talk about hitchcock well now that you've you've mentioned it <laughs> no i do not really no not. no one uh yeah I mean, we can just touch on this which it's it's a little sad that maybe we're going to breeze through this one a little bit because uh i thought it was a really great film i really really liked uh hitchcock mm-hmm. um a lot um i mean i'm a big original like going back to actual the director hitchcock like i'm a big fan of his work a big fan of of Mm -hmm. you know his movies and i thought this biopic was really very well done yeah i couldn't speak to the authenticity of events you know i don't i don't know much about the person hitchcock um that being said thoroughly enjoyed it you know i really especially like uh the scarlett johansson character when they introduced her and like the weird triangle that that kind of not really formed, but kind of formed between him and his wife and her. Um, I thought it was really fascinating. And I loved Helen Mirren in this as his wife, who um, has all the good ideas. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, 
you know, authenticity wise, I, you know, I like everything. It's it's a mix of fiction and fact, but there there is a lot of reality in the film. I think it felt that um, way without without wanting to say that everything is one hundred percent accurate. You know, the I, only I, thing that I, I was a little weirded out by that I wouldn't, I don't know, as a I don't know if I would have included was the weird mental relationship he formed with Ed Gein. Yeah, I, that was that was a very strange aspect of the movie. Like, I, I did like... <laughs> I loved seeing that guy playing Ed Gein again, because I love that actor. Don't know his name. Guy who played Guy of Gisborne and Prince yeah. of Thieves. And he shows up with his big, raspy voice. And I just love him. I want to see I've ordered him. you to disperse from the Three Musketeers. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And when, as soon as I recognized him, I was like, hey, good. Yes. But it was weird because it was like, it almost seemed to suggest that Hitchcock had mental issues or, or had some, had his own obsessive. And he, we know he had his own obsessive kind of issues, but it, it took, it took the film in a, a weird, dark place that I wasn't, completely yeah. expecting i i don't disagree at all because I, you know i think it's um i think the movie could have stood just as well without it mm-hmm. um because i i don't think those are the parts like those are not the parts that i think about when i think of the movie like i think of the scenes where he's like you know directing the, the screams in the theater or yeah um, you know just th- there's a whole bunch of other moments out of the movie that i think about and those always kind of pulled me back from the story just a little bit. Like, wait, why are we back here again? No, exactly. Why are we doing... Why I, are we... And I felt like if you wanted to discuss his obsessiveness and his his desire to control women and his, you know, how he was hurt by women, the one actress who went and got pregnant and how he felt abandoned by her, I thought there, was a, there were other scenes that accomplished that really well. Like the scene where he takes over the stabbing of Vivian Lee in the shower. It's like, there's some really great moments that you go, this guy is a little out of control with his desire to control. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And it felt, and those felt more authentic as opposed to this conjured Ed Gein relationship. I don't know. Other than that, great. Anthony Hopkins was fantastic as Hitchcock. Yeah. No, I mean, he was brilliant. Um, Helen Mirren was brilliant. Honestly, everybody in the film did a a fantastic job. And, uh, I mean, um, uh, what's her name? Jennifer Beale? uh, Jessica Beale. Jessica Beale. I loved her. She had such a small part in this. But she conveyed so much. Like there's the scene where there, he gets like the cast and crew together for the first time, and he he has clearly worked with this actress before, and this is the actress he felt kind of abandoned by, um, or you know. And there's this moment where everybody just disperses, and she's left by herself because nobody's kind of talking to her or communicating what needs to happen. Yeah. And there's it's just a single shot where your heart just goes out to her because you know what it's like to kind of be in this room, and just go okay, well. I'm part of the team, right, guys? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. And it just, it was really well done. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Okay. So let's wrap this up. We, <laughs> it's going to be a longer episode. We already knew that going in. Yes. Um, like we're already yeah. well into it. Uh, <laughs> well, you guys are enjoying this, right? Probably <laughs> 46. Anyhow. Yeah. Um, all right, so the movie of the day. Let's let's just move on here. The movie that we're talking right about today, it. Some Like It Hot, number 22 on AFI's Top 100 list. Mm-hmm. Uh, released in 1959, directed by Billy Wilder, yeah. and starring Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe. 
Where do you want? To- <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's your cue, Scott. That's Jump in. Cue. Uh, so really, it's just it's a delightful little comedy uh, about these two musicians. Basically, it's kind of set during the Prohibition time, and uh, they are they are musicians for a band that plays at one of these um, speakeasies, more or less. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the film, uh, the speakeasies raided, and so they uh, they escape capture and they escape the mob and they end up <laughs> to to continue their lifestyle and to make money and to also escape everybody who may be looking for them they decide to pose as women um, and join this all women's band that's heading down to Florida um, and they're like it'll be great we'll go down to Florida we'll make money we'll escape all of this and we'll be surrounded by broads and it'll be great um, and of course their plans go horribly awry when Marilyn Monroe shows up and of course um uh, spe- specifically, Tony Curtis really falls for her, and um, you know, wackiness ensues. Exactly. Yeah, it's you know, it's a, it's this screwball comedy genre of a film. It, um, not to jump down towards our end, but it, it reminds yeah. me kind of of bringing up Baby a little bit, like that we already reviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very much in that wacky. Um, lots of slapstick, lots of uh, witty banter and dialogue yeah. and yeah. innuendo. Lots and, of innuendo. I love the innuendo in this movie. <laughs> um, you know, and that's and that's the whole genre of this film. Um, and it's it's a it's a very clever sort of film. You know, it's it's it came out in 1959. So this was a point when American society was very. Um, not as accepting as as they are today, maybe of things being out there. So you know, you had to be more clever in the way you got ideas across, or the way you told jokes, or, or yeah. whatever. There's a, there's for a broad ex- audience. There's an extended sequence about uh, Tony Curtis' inability to get an erection, basically, and you have ab- you absolutely know what he's talking about. There's no denying it, and Marilyn Monroe's doing her best to. Uh, cure him but it's never spoken it's very it's played very coyly very you know they don't try to hide it yet they you know it's done very very well and it's hilarious and that's one of my favorite things about these older movies that come from this time period is how clever the screenwriting can be to convey all the ideas there's like this movie goes all over the place with the the comedy and the subjects that they have no problem approaching but they do it in a way that's not illicit or explicit you know while making you think all the same things you would in a R-rated film that would just say it or show it or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, <clears throat> you know, there's kind of this this concept uh, in creative circles about um, if having constraints sometimes actually can increase the amount of creativity that you have. Like, if you just have complete free run on a project, mm-hmm. then... Um, then you don't have anything to work with it, and it can actually stifle creativity a little bit. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have, you know, very solid constraints, then you know the box that you have to work in. And then if you also have a specific goal, then you know that you have to work within these constraints to get to this point. And that's how movies from this period are, is they have to work within the set of parameters that they have. And the parameters we're talking about is it this kind of moral code. And there's different parameters, which leads to some really interesting different types of movies when you think of budgetary constraints. That leads you to having to be creative in how you pull off 
certain shots or if you have time constraints if you have whatever and with this they really could have made whatever movie they wanted this was a studio film Mm -hmm. but there were certain things you weren't allowed to say there were certain things you weren't allowed to show and so they had to go well how do we how do we make a funny comedy about two cross-dressing men um and make it allowable (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. how do we get it past the censors yeah now which is interesting because in the end, they didn't get it past the censors. They actually did not submit this film for a MPAA certificate and released it without uh, without running it by the censor board. Interesting. And it was a huge hit. This is one of the films that kind of ended the whole production code um, of the of the forties and fifties um, because it was a huge hit. They realized there was an audience for this kind of movie, mm-hmm. and um, and they had done that without getting you know going through the proper channels and so once once you kind of saw that this could happen the gate kind of started unlocking for some of that and and as you know like mid-60s on into the 70s um you know the mpa was really forced to change how they how they provided certificates and and uh you know production code kind of went away and um Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a very fascinating movie because it it grew out of this concept of having to work within parameters and it was ultimately the thing that kind of blew away a lot of those parameters and it's terrifically funny even still you know what is this it's over 50 years later and i was still laughing my way through it you know especially uh jack lemon's character i I love Jack Lemmon in these older movies. Um, there's a scene in this where they actually had to refilm it uh, because the early test screen, they, they, they early test of the film, people laughed so hard at what Jack Lemmon was saying and were laughing so long that they were missing the entire rest of the scene and the rest of the dialogue. So they re, they went back, refilmed the whole thing, and you'll recognize it as a scene where Jack Lemmon has these like little one-line jokes and then he's playing with these maracas. And these the maracas are basically laugh breaks that allows the audience to laugh at what he said <laughs> quiet back down and then he says his next line and it's one of the funniest scenes um in the film outside of maybe the last scene of the film which i think is one of the funniest scenes as well (laughs) (laughs) no one's perfect no one's Um, perfect final line of the film (laughs) but uh yeah no it's it's a it's a really hilarious movie it's very different uh i know one of our last films that we went over was tootsie which is why we jumped into this next because it, it has a lot of thematic um, elements that are same. It's a very different movie than Tootsie, or Tootsie is a very different movie from this, I guess, is maybe a better way to look at it. Yeah. Um, because they are both, you know, at, at kind of a, at a baseline, they are both these, you know, cross-dressing... Comedies. Comedies. Yeah. But they approach completely differently yes. um, between them. Tootsie's um, approach much more solemnly? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the right word. It's much more earnestly kind of going, this is what what would happen. Could someone do this? What does this person learn from this? Where from the moment these two characters show up in, in dresses, it's all played for comedy. Yeah, like, it's, it's a cartoon. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's Bugs Bunny in a dress. Yeah. And that said, at the same time, they both tackle a lot of the same issues. You know, what are gender roles? What are, um, you know... Uh, women's issues you know men understanding women better women understanding men but you know all of these kind of large discussion things happen in both movies mm-hmm. in completely different ways yeah um and i i think that's why they both work is that they are 
despite coming from completely different places, they are both willing to discuss these larger issues, um, but on their own terms. They're not going to do it the same way each other did, but they're they're still willing to have some of that conversation. Yeah, I, I feel like Tootsie really set out to have those conversations, mm-hmm. and I almost feel like uh, Some Like It Hot creates conversations despite itself. <laughs> you know, it's like they're all it's all there, and you can have those conversations, but it's definitely played more f- as a broad comedy. It's definitely there. Like, here's this subject, and we're going to laugh about it. Yeah, and maybe I, on, on your way home, you might go, I know we were laughing about it, but did you ever think about that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think some of that is also the time when it came out. I mean, 1959, very different than, you know, the late 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, the the grand conversation that the country was having at that point, very different. You know, what people were willing to talk about, very different. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think I think by the time Tootsie rolled around, people were willing to have a more open conversation about things. In 1959, uh, people were willing to talk about the jokes that they just heard. Right. And I think, I think it's a clever usage of a medium mm-hmm. to get towards a subject matter. Um, both films... Um, you know, knew knew their subject matter, knew the times they were living in, and made a film that really could speak both to that moment and still works today mm-hmm. on the levels that they need to work at today. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, completely understandable to me why both films are on the AFI Top 100. Absolutely. I mean... <sighs> Just how funny this movie is to me. The fact that this is a movie that has been able to continue to generate laughs for over 50 years, yeah. to me, speaks to the quality of this film. Yeah, I mean, it um, is laugh out loud. Yeah, I mean, there, there are things in here that, obviously, like we're saying, it's it's a product of its time, but solid comedy. I mean, it's like watching I Love Lucy. It's like there's stuff in here that is still funny. It's like this very universal things that we can all relate to in a big wacky context that just make you laugh like the some of the the dialogue in this and the banter and the the little things they say oh it's like it's just it's all good you know and you kind of relate to these guys you know especially at the beginning when um they're still trying through the whole movie they're trying to keep up this persona that they are these women and when they're put in these compromising situations that could clearly that could clearly be bad for them (laughs) it could be make it harder to uh uh keep their disguise up it's like it's just it, you connect with it and it's really really funny yeah absolutely i think that's all i have to say about that yeah i was just <laughs> me too um do you have any uh any thoughts scott on other movies people might want to to watch if uh if I they do. like this one oh the first one uh, to me it's one that we've already reviewed on the podcast and i recommended everybody watch it then i'm going to say it again and it's the apartment with jack lemon uh, was that also a billy wilder film i feel like it was i believe you are correct yes. um the apartment with jack lemon shirley mcclane um a little bit more serious of a comedy if there's such a thing um in this time period but it's one that i think is still terrific and is very you know it holds up very well as well. Um, if you enjoyed the more the mob aspect of this, another one of my favorite comedies is Analyze This. Not Analyze oh. That. That's very skippable. <laughs> <laughs> but Analyze This, the Billy Crystal, Robert De Niro uh, mob comedy, um, I think is a terrifically fun film. Um, that is also very, very funny. It was the beginning of Robert De Niro's experimentation with comedy. Um, and it's probably the best of his uh, lighter films. It allows him to be the mobster, but also be funny. 
Another movie I'd like to recommend um, that has nothing to do with this movie, but it only exists on my list today because I forgot to mention it in our foreign films episode of the podcast <laughs> is Pan's Labyrinth, a scary, horrific <laughs> Spanish film about a little girl who discovers another uh, world in, in which she may be a princess. It's a horrifying film that's also terrific. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, back to this movie. Um <laughs> Wow. If <laughs> if, uh, if you like this, I mean, definitely go check out Tootsie. We, we talked about it previously. I think the two go very well together. Completely different films, but really go well together. Yes. Um, you know, you can also... Uh, you know, you can... You can there's a... Um, Jack Lemmon made a ton of movies. There's a ton of Jack Lemmon films. Yeah. Go check out any of them. Um, you know, you, you nailed it with The Apartment, I think. But there's a ton of others. Uh, Marilyn Monroe went on and made a ton of other movies. Most of those are, are fun in their own way. Um, you know, Seven Year Itch or Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or whatever. Oh, those yeah. are all Those are all well worthwhile. Um, and then um, going back to kind of the beginning of, of the screwball romantic comedy kind of genre, it happened one night. It's a Frank Capra film um, with uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert in it. Um, you can kind of see where a lot of this stuff kind of came from with it, uh, where really the whole romantic comedy genre came from and where kind of screwball comedy really grew out of. Um, I highly recommend that as well. It's a great movie in its own right. Um, so those are just a few. Yeah. Something else I might recommend. Um, this might come out of left field a little bit. Um, but the TV show Smash just kind of concluded its two-season run. It's been canceled. It wasn't a perfect TV show by any stretch of the imagination, um, but Kelly and I both really did enjoy watching it uh, for both seasons. Um, and the reason I'm bringing it up is that a big part of the of the show was that it's about people putting on a Broadway show, and it's about Marilyn Monroe. And so there's lots of conversation throughout both seasons of about Marilyn Monroe and about becoming a star and about all of these, some of these things. And there's a lot of discussion about a lot of these movies and a lot of the, these things that even we're talking about today. Um, and so I think it's worth your while. You know, I think if you can find it on Netflix or on Hulu, um, I would, I would definitely recommend checking out a couple episodes of it or the whole thing. If you enjoy it, there's a couple, there's, it definitely veers towards the end of season one. It begin it starts to become a guilty pleasure because some of it is kind of, ridiculous um season two it gets better again but smash i think it's worth checking out yeah um yeah the other thing i would say if if you do kind of like the whole marilyn monroe thing um my week with marilyn came out what a year or two ago that's really Um, good it's really good it has some great performances in it um michelle williams uh, and michelle williams is marilyn yeah uh, it's it's great um and just a, a really interesting kind of peek into kind of that world a little bit of of that time um really sympathetic Marilyn Monroe character in that as well because she shows up in England wanting to be a proper actress mm-hmm. and she's working with Sir Lawrence Olivier who wants to be more of a pop star if you will mm-hmm. you know like he's a, he's a very well-grounded actor but he wants he wants that fame and notoriety and so these two characters kind of want what the other has and it's really interesting yeah so uh, there's a few things to go check out uh, turns out so absolutely alright well um yeah, that is uh, that's the episode. some like it hot. Yeah, uh, join us next time. We're going to be doing, I believe, number thirty-six on AFI's top one hundred, "The Bridge on the River Kwai." Yes, which has really nothing whatsoever to do with what we just talked about today. It's just it's, another good film that deserves discussion. Yeah, so we'll be uh, we'll be covering that next time. Um, until then, you can 
always follow us on Twitter at Movies You Should, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Movies You Should, or at our website. Join in the conversation. We'd love to uh, chat with you about what we've been talking about. Um, MoviesYouShouldLove.com. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at MoviesYouShouldLove.com. 